Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Here's another reason why we need to separate the blue states from the red states. It's, it's just really simple. Down in Florida 15 years ago, they had this whole, you know, after the 2005, uh, what was it, SARS, I guess it was in 2005. After that, Florida, the state, actually put together an emergency response system to respond to a pandemic, to a SARS epidemic. And started stockpiling, you know, masks and stuff like that, you know, personal... But then came Governor Rick Scott, and he said, we don't need this stuff. We've got to balance the budget. We've got to reduce our expenses so we can lower taxes on multimillionaires like me, right, says Rick Scott. So he put an end to it, and Ron DeSantis never started it up again. And now you've got the mayor of Miami, who's a Democrat, polling way higher than the governor of Florida, who kept the beaches open. And then over in Georgia... You've got Brian Kemp, the guy who stole the election from Stacey Abrams because he was Secretary of State and he could control who could vote and who couldn't. And he kept a half a million people from voting and he won by 50,000 votes. That idiot. Yeah, Brian Kemp, that idiot who a couple of days ago said, wow, I just learned that you could transmit this virus without actually having symptoms. That's a game changer. These are the kind of idiots that the Republicans put in charge of their red states because they want compliant idiots who are not very thoughtful, who are not very smart. So when the Koch brothers and their, and their billionaire buddies tell them what to do, tell them how to jump, they simply say, how high, sir? I mean, why am I subsidizing these people? So anyhow, we've got callers from both red states and blue states on the board. Let's start with the blue state, Paul, in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what do you think of this? Well, Tom, I'm glad you're coming around to my way of thinking. I'm not a credit taker, but I am going to have to remind you that I suggested exactly this. Back during the impeachment was the last time, and I suggested this a couple of years ago. During the impeachment, I said that the way to get the Senate back and keep the House is if the Democrats would just say, and my angle was this, that the 16th Amendment allows the federal government to collect income tax. It doesn't compel the federal government to do so. Right. So that if the Democrats just said, we're going to get rid of this and everybody's on their own, I couldn't have never foreseen that, number one, 
the Trump administration has become an adversary to the states and making them compete against each other, well, then let's have a level playing field. Let's really have a competition because these red states are going to crash. They're going to crash. Without the right, and the blue states could go into a compact together and they could all be buying respirators together right now and they could probably outbid the federal government if the federal government's revenue is limited to tariffs and fees. That's going to be happening now because this, the balkanization of America has started in terms of blue and red because if you can't rely on the federal government when Jared Kushner is saying that these, you know, these respirators are ours, they're not yours, okay, well, right. what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine is their attitude. Let's everybody, let's, this is the way to split the sheets, honestly. This is the way to do it. And Democrats, if they suggest this on the national level, they will be wildly popular. They will win everywhere, both the Senate and the House, and just simply say we're not collecting federal income tax anymore. Every state will have more money, but the blue states will have a hell of a lot more. And I remember you saying, well, remember, Paul, you don't have an income tax. And I said, well, there's different ways for states to collect taxes. So the states will have to work that out on their own. But the blue states already do, because they have high tech, they already do have progressive policies, and they're much better off. And here's the other thing. I think part of what I was suggesting before, Hillary Clinton, in the 2016 election, Donald Trump won 2,600 counties across America. And those 2,600 counties accounted for 36% 36% of the economic production of America. Hillary Clinton won 500 counties. 20%. 587. 20%, 587, which accounted for 64% of the economic production in, across America. So the, it's already clear that the blue states are the maker states, the red states are the taker states, and they're trying to dictate from the minority. So let's go ahead and just say, okay. We can get the majority so that the federal government will not tax in other ways. If the Democrats say we're going to not collect federal income taxes, they will own Congress, and they will not then allow the federal government to kind of somehow get around this idea. So, well, yeah, we'll just have tariffs and fees and go ahead and fund your – see if you can fund a trillion-dollar-a-year military that way. I don't think you're going to be able to. And you know what? You know what? We'll save a hell of a lot of money on this. I think it's a fantastic idea, and if the, all the Democratic Party has to do is get the guts to say, yeah. Because, Tom, since you didn't remember our conversation, what I'm gleeful about is that you essentially came to it on your own. The same thing, even though I suggested it. Now I'm going, yeah, okay, see, you figured it well, out, Well, it's too. entirely... It's entirely possible, Paul, that some deep unconscious part of me remembered in great detail what you said, and it just kind of popped back out again this weekend. Doesn't matter. Uh, but I actually, it doesn't matter. I, it's, I, yeah. yeah. Thank you. It doesn't matter how you got Thank there. You. It's like things that you realize, you know, that you've been taught that finally, you know, that maybe your parents taught you or something that you learned in school that finally clicked however many years later. You went, oh, yeah, I get it, right? (laughs) Okay. Paul, I tip I had to you. Thank you. You were prescient and great to hear from you. Eric in Burlington, Iowa. Let's go to a red state. Hey, Eric, what do you think? Well, I think you got the right idea, but let me throw another mechanism at you for what you might call democratic principles, okay? You can accomplish a lot once you get in power just to have the tax code. And what I propose is the idea, well, let's say, and the numbers aren't going to crank out, but just hear my example. Let's say in your tax form, you can give a dollar to elections or not just by, you know, bubbling in the box, right? So you just have two tax codes on the 1040. You have one that those who want socialism would pay, let's say, 15%. 
And then those who don't want socialism would pay, say, 10 percent and let them decide every April 15th how they vote for socialism, because what they would provide if they paid the higher rate is they would get free health care. They would get free college. They would get, you know, you, you put you pick your list. Right. And those that are so against this evil socialism, you watch how they run about 98 percent of them to bubble in the slightly higher tax rate in order to get all the benefits. And if for some reason they get into trouble and they don't choose those benefits, you simply ask them when they need help, let me see your taxes that you filed, and say, I'm sorry, you opted out of the ability to go have your kids go to college for free. Go out of the private market, get a loan. Yeah. You know? so, it's a fascinating idea, Eric. The, the problem is, I mean, what you're doing is you're taking my logic, which I'm applying to 50 states, and you're applying it yeah. instead to, you know, 160 million taxpayers or, you know, all 340 million of us. And I get states. it. And that's far more granular. And, you know, I think, though, that you'd have a really serious problem with enforcement of that. Plus, you've got a lot of people who don't pay taxes at all. You know, about half the entire American population, working population, does not pay federal income tax. And 47%, actually, according to Mitt Romney. And so, you know, how do those people shake up? This is why I think, with my suggestion for red states and blue states, I think what would happen within a decade of putting this into place is probably about half to a third, and I'm guessing Iowa would be in this list, of red states would suddenly become blue states. The citizens would elect new leadership that would then choose to join the blue state compact so that those citizens could have free college and free health care and, and a reasonable quality of life and have the blue state EPA cleaning up their rivers and streams and things. Make sense, Eric? Well, I, yeah, I mean, it makes I sense, and I agree. It becomes inevitable. I agree with that. But we can whistle and chew gum at the same time. I'm suggesting that, you know, the Democrats get into power, let's say, even if they don't have the Senate, which I hope they get. But, you know, through the tax committees, you simply put that choice out there. Now, if you don't want to have a whole list, let's let's say that there's not 50 different things you benefit from. Let's just pick two. Let's just pick two. Free health care or Medicare or Medicaid for all, let's say, as a choice and say free college, just those two. And then on the tax code, you simply offer two competing choices and let the people of, I mean, it'll reach everybody. There won't be a way to suppress the vote at the polls, nothing. And when a bunch of people vote for these things and receive these things, how the heck are you ever going to take what I call, I would call the democratic platform then away from the people? I mean, you wouldn't be able to do it. And you don't have Mm -hmm. to wait the 10 years of what you're talking about. Look, I agree with you. I'm saying Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have the tax committees now. They could start this process now. And even if it doesn't get done this year, the fact that it's being talked about, I'm telling you, it's a winner. Yeah. Okay, Eric. Eric, thanks a lot for the call. Thanks for listening to us on Sirius XM there in Burlington, Iowa. Wow. I think we're on to something here. I realize this may on its surface seem overly punitive to the red states, people living in them, but I think frankly it's the fastest way to turn them blue. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas. Hey Bill, what's on your mind? Regarding the interstate compacts, I was very interested in your discussion about, and I completely support your idea, it's a great idea. My girlfriend comes from California and says that uh, a lot of Californians resent having to subsidize the, a lot of the red states that don't have to pay. But regarding the compacts, I have a lot of experience in it, Tom. Uh, 
I opposed a bad compact and actually testified to the Energy and Power Subcommittee of the Commerce Committee in 1997. It was called the Texas Low-Level Radioactive Waste Compact with Maine and Vermont. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, oh, was it a sheer waste? Case, uh, yes, for low-level radioactive, so-called low-level radioactive waste. It was unfair because my little town here in Sierra Blanca would have been the dumping ground for not only Maine and Vermont's atomic power waste. They each have one reactor, but East Texas reactors where there's four. And it was just really Whoa. mainly to get cheaper rates for disposal to bring in more volume. But they were saying it would protect us somehow, Tom, from interstate right. commerce by uh, limiting to two small states in Maine and Vermont. In any case, I don't know if you've considered it, Tom. How do you think Congress would react to that? As you probably know, they would require ratification of any compact in, in one of three ways. I didn't realize that interstate compacts required congressional authorization. I they don't, they I don't, usually I do, do, I do Tom. Not believe it. How they so? usually do. Well, under what under uh, well, what provision of federal un, law? Un, under the Article One, Section Ten of the United States Constitution, no state shall enter in, without the consent of Congress enter into any agreement or compact with another state. So consent can be obtained in one of three ways. First, there has to be a model compact. And Congress can grant automatic approval, such as that driver license compact, or they can actually submit a compact to Congress prior to entering into a compact, or they can do like what Texas and Maine and Vermont were doing when I opposed this in testifying. Actually, eight years of this horrible nightmare with George Bush and Ann Richards that were pushing it. But anyway, the other way, Tom, is congressional ratification, what happened after Two or more states approve it through their state's legislatures, and it passed there, and the governor signs it. So that would cause it to come into effect after the, the House and the Senate ratify it. We defeated it in 1995, mm. and then it actually finally passed in 1998. Paul Wellstone, my friend, did, opposed it for years, but it, they finally, they finally had to release his hold when it overcame, and President Clinton signed it into law in uh, October of 1998. So I do know a little bit about it, but I think maybe if the states had enough support, it might be hard for Congress to say no. I mean, they're always talking about states' rights, right? Yeah, well, and that's the point. They're also always talking about ending the federal income tax. And so what I'm saying is let's go horse cart, right? The horse is we're going to end the federal income tax. The Republicans have been gung-ho for this for years. Democrats are suddenly going to agree. No more federal income tax. Now that we've got rid of the federal income tax, the states have to figure out a way to fund themselves. So let's authorize an interstate, you know, inter- various interstate compacts where the states can get together and figure out how to pool their resources to provide for urgent services and you know, everything from police to schools and hospitals and things. Makes sense, Bill, as a strategy? Yes. Yes, it does. And it would also create a governmental agency, Tom, which is responsible for administrating. In, in the Texas case, with this bad compact that well, they were dumping on us, it, would, it created a compact commission, as you, as you probably know, would have to have like a governmental body to administer the compact. And those commissioners are appointed by the, the state's governors. One last thing. The Supreme Court in 1893 affirmed that only those agreements which would increase the power of states at the expense of the federal government required a compact. What decision was that? 1893 Supreme Court decision in Virginia versus Tennessee. It affirmed that those agreements which would increase the power of states at the expense of the federal government required congressional approval. Okay. 
Because it's, it's a challenge to federalism, arguably. I guess. But I guess that goes through the Constitution. But uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, a lawyer or a constitutional lawyer, but I think it's a great idea, and I think we should go for it. Yeah, I'm with you, Bill. Bill, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. That was brilliant. I'm telling you, it is so cool that we've got the, you know, the smartest, absolutely smartest listeners on earth. You raise an issue and somebody knows the answer to it. It's incredible. Chris in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Chris, what's up? You know, this is really funny. I, for several, oh gosh, either weeks or years now, I've been thinking this exact same thought that you just popped out this morning. Like, you know, gee, maybe the West Coast will secede from the Union or something like that. But I mean, and now this talk of a couple of your prior callers talked about the plague and the plague then in a year, a hundred years or so led to the Renaissance. Well, you know, nowadays, you know, exponentially. Oh, it's just a, it was just a moved. generation or two, actually. Oh, really? Well, now, yeah, you know, with the labor shortage. time moves so, moves so fast that, I mean, this and, and everybody is just so ready for a, a change. Everybody knows capitalism has gone. The elections are rigged. The climate's going crazy. The rich versus poor. The endless wars. The stocks are crashing. I mean, everything is just so set up for this. I just hope that what you're talking about today actually comes true. I mean, it's like a dream come true. I mean, I don't know. What do you think about all that? I think it's entirely possible. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. The challenge is going to be, and I didn't realize this until this last caller, it's going to be getting it through Congress. There's a lot of political pieces here that are going to have to be moved. It seems kind of like it's the governors. You know, Trump keeps wanting to dump everything on the states. Well, maybe, right. you know, so let's let them do it. The governors could stand up and, and actually say, OK, let's do it instead of, you know. Yeah, there's kind of a beginning here, you know, with Andrew Cuomo accepting ventilators from Kate Brown here in Oregon. You've got two yeah. governors who are working yeah, together. Was, and I think we're going to see more of that. Chris, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And uh, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Terry in Ventura, California. Hey, Terry, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm uh, fascinated by the subject of the red and blue state divide. I'm very much influenced by the, uh, I remember the book, The Nine Nations of North America, another book. Yes, the big sword. I remember it well. Right. My claim is, and I felt it personally, okay, maybe it's because our history is too recent from the Civil War and, and our uh, addiction towards guns. But I take this uh, divide quite personally. Give you an example. I remember once traveling across Texas, coming back to California, and early in the morning in a freeway cafe, somebody said, oh, are you one of those fruit and nut people? Okay. No smile. Okay. Once on a train, I'm wearing my mm -hmm. California hat, and I'm told, hey, you don't wear that hat out of the state, do you? These cultural divisions, I think that, hey, that's why Massachusetts and Rhode Island split, if we remember the religious history and the mm -hmm. religion. That was the religion the aspect. Right. But I think every, a lot of people dislike one another everywhere. Is it just an American thing? And if it is cultural, no. how do we overcome it from by those who manipulate us? Yeah, look at the history of Northern Ireland and Ireland. <laughs> no, it's not just a, a cultural thing. It's not unique to the United States. The problem is, in particular, and certainly the case in Ireland, is when demagogues get a hold of these issues and turn them into political weapons.
Renee in Cedar, Minnesota. Hey, Renee, what's up? You just have the smartest callers. They always get me to thinking about so many different things. But how can we actually do this? I even remember when Ted Kennedy was running, you know, and a Republican said, well, I'd never vote for him because I'm a Christian and I'd never vote for a divorced person. And I said, well, who are you going to vote for? That changed with Reagan, didn't it? Reagan. She said, Reagan. I said, but he's divorced. She said, that's different. And that stuck in my head. And since then, I mean, that was a long time ago, but since then, that's what they always say. I'm a Christian. I have to vote Republican. And I go, well, this guy's been married, cheated on his wife, raped a 13-year-old child. That's different. I do not know how to Mm -hmm. get through to him. But I'm hoping you can have this compact. That would be great. But how can we, in Minnesota, we have very good elections, but, you know, they're trying to kick people off voting booths. How do we actually do this? This is something that would have to be worked out between the governors of several of the states. And I think that, you know, putting together a, uh, you know, a conference of some kind, it would have to be virtual given the circumstances of today, but putting together some kind of a conference where the governors got together and said, okay, here's what's up and here's what we're working on and and let's make this happen. I think that's where where it starts. Renee, thank you for the call. Very uh, thoughtful. Tom Hartman here with you. Eric in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? I have a little bit different take on the red state, blue state stuff. Okay. I don't think it's a, personally, it's a good idea to see each other, like, in those dualities. If you ever take a look at the, like, the density dot maps, like, even, like, the last election, you begin to notice, like, the patterns on our voting electorate. We're really not that far apart from each other. We're, we're really not. We really, mm-hmm. it's kind of a false narrative to say that we're just, you know, red and blue. Because I, I have family and a lot of friends that live in red states, and they just cannot stand Trump. Uh, they, they call him Trumpsky the traitor. But I would just say that goes back to that argument that you're making about income tax, that kind of stuff. I've been a school teacher for 20 years, and I've seen what, like, the lack of federal funding has done. So, like, even just our education system, I see us going the other way, right? I see us nationalizing taxation even further instead of just this kind of patchwork, you know, just scrapped together kind of system of property taxes right now that kind of funds our educational system. And I sincerely understand your frustration with, you know, Milton Friedman and his selfish manifestos of, like, the last 40 years that... They get such lip service on propaganda services like Fox News and stuff. But hey, uh, let me read you this something by Abraham Lincoln, right? Here's a leader that we can look to from the past that gives us, I think, some great wisdom for how to look at this time, right? He wrote this in uh, March 4th, 1865. Uh, right before he was assassinated, I believe. Uh, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan. March fourth, eighteen sixty-five. That's right. Yeah, that was his. Uh, that was his second inaugural address. That would have been the day that he was sworn in. Was March fourth. 
I get it, Eric. Here's what I'm thinking, though. What I'm thinking is that you're absolutely right, that probably half, maybe two-thirds of the so-called red states are actually purple states. And the only way that the Republicans are controlling power at the federal level is by having very small majorities in each of those states, or at least suppressing the voting majority of Democrats in those states. So what I'm thinking is when the people living in those states who are not completely brainwashed, I mean, I'm not talking about Mississippi here, I'm talking about like Missouri or Tennessee and Kentucky. When the people living in those states figure out how screwed they're going to be, If they don't go along with the Blue State Compact, and the Blue State Compact is saying, hey, any state who wants to join us can join us. Just raise your top income tax rate up to 74% and provide free college, free education, you know, et cetera. And we're going to function as a progressive country. We're going to emulate Canada, basically. I'm not even talking about going full Denmark. I think at that point, then, the political calculus within those purple states changes And within short order, within a few years, you're going to have the vast majority of the states being under the control of basically the blue state compact. And at that point, the Electoral College map changes completely because now you've got states that were voting Republican in the Electoral College, which is how, you know, our last two Republican presidents, both of them lost the popular vote. George W. Bush and Donald Trump, they completely lost the popular vote. And uh, they were only voted by the Electoral College. So this changes that calculus. And then you can go back to federalism. You can say, okay, we've all learned our lesson now. And, uh, you know, we'll go back to a federal income tax and we'll distribute it fairly. Although Mississippi may still want to stay out of the union. I don't know. But you see what I'm saying, Eric? Yeah, no, I I do absolutely see what you're saying. I'm actually wondering if that might be a, a sooner reality than you think of. Just if we end up with this, you know, mandatory, mandatory like social distancing and our elections have to turn into mail-in ballots, we may have a, a large right. percentage of people that have never been seen before suddenly simply just show up and they can't be gerrymandered with, you know. There's a great conversation right. with uh, another writer named Anand Girondardis, I don't know if you know him, he wrote this incredible book called The Way yeah, I do. Take All. Uh, he's just I've read a fantastic it. researcher. Yeah, I would highly recommend that to anybody. Uh, there's a real dynamic, right? I mean, not so much red state, blue state, although I understand what you're talking about. It really is this conglomerate of small, super powerful, inequality focused people that basically, for all intents and purposes, run the world. I mean, you got, you got that Oxfam study that came out, what, last year that uh, demonstrated that eight individuals have. Half the Earth, I think, is what they, that that study had released. Yeah, and uh, and, and yeah, and three country. three individuals own more than the bottom half of America. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. You know, I got nothing but respect for you and Paul from Woodenville, but I think both of you are stuck in sort of a uh, um, time dilation, you know, or like a Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but for politics. And what I mean by that is you see what's coming in the future, but the timeline, I think, is skewed a little bit because, look, I live in a blue state, and I am very liberal, all right? And when I was at the Pentagon, I used to argue with a colonel there that would always say, Dave, you mean to tell me you're right and everybody else is wrong? And, and like, on, on the subject of, of gays being allowed to serve in the military, you know, which I was for, I said, yes, I am right and everybody's wrong. And he said, that's delusional. Mm -hmm. 
I think what he meant was <laughs> it's so honest. It, 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 you know, you can't be honest all the time is what he was trying to tell me. And, and I do have that problem. All right. And for instance, I work for a company now that's very red. All right. They, if you even mention union, they're going to fire you. All right. They're very anti-union. Mm-hmm. And they're here in Washington. Same is true of Amazon, which is headquartered out of Washington. Yeah, and I've had seasonal allergies for years, and I'm also hypertensive. I mean, I'm a 50-year-old white guy. I mean, you know, I got these (laughs) medical issues. But I ride my bicycle to work. That's 10 miles a day. But a lot of the symptoms I have, especially this time of year, are close to COVID. Well, they started asking me, you know, do you have a sore throat? Do you have a fever? You know, I said, yes, low-grade fever. I always do this time of year. Well, they told me to go home without pay. I mean, basically, they fired me. All right. Well, and, um, or laid yeah, you off. Yeah, yeah. Well, they laid, I'm pretty sure I'm fired because, I mean, they, they also put a disciplinary report. They said something about I was talking about it too much and scaring people. But in fact, I hmm. never talked about it. I was answering questions that were posed to me. All right. And I mm-hmm. think they, they are just using the COVID thing to get rid of me. So my point is if you look at the Civil War, you guys are oversimplifying it, all right? There is a philosophy behind all of this. And basically that philosophy is, you know, it's is social Darwinism. I mean, you know, uh, like even Jeff Bezos, at the end of the day, even though Donald Trump hates him, Jeff Bezos will side with Donald Trump. It, the philosophy is what's mine is mine and no one can take it. Uh, you, you often refer to it, this anecdotal thing about a German that said, I would rather pay taxes and live in a, in a country where. Yeah, I don't want to be a rich man in a poor country is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and Dave, I, I think that if, if I can put a larger frame on this, because when I wrote this piece this weekend and I'm going to submit it for publication uh, later today, but um, I wrote it this weekend about basically, you know, the rant that I opened the show with. I wrote it as a chapter for my book on oligarchy. The philosophy that these guys all subscribe to is the philosophy of oligarchy, the idea that oligarchs are wiser and better and more competent and they're the ones who should run society and some of them use a religious rationalization, you know, the whole Calvinism thing, others use a survival of the fittest, you know, a Darwinian rationalization. But really I think the the big belief structure here is oligarchy. Well, yes, but you understand it's pernicious, right? Like, I saw an article just mm. this weekend that Trump, he's neglected his Indo-Pacific policy, but he's reinvesting money in it. That is the Obama-Pacific pivot. Look, this India-Pacific thing is, is militaristic and it's belligerent, and China is going to respond. I mean, in the absence yeah. of, like, a pandemic or World War III, I don't know if the changes you and Paul are talking about are going to come about anytime soon. Yeah, well, we'll see. But your points are all well raised. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. John in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Yesterday, I just jotted down an idea concerning the same concept that you were talking about this morning about the blue states and the red states. I was thinking about the concept of a communal states compact so Hmm. that we can actually... uh, come up with the, uh, under, under that, a charter uh, where we can start our own active communal states banking system so that we can actually, well, come up with a uh, reserve so that we can actually, uh, we won't have to wait on the administration and kind of to a left and argue with the demons. So 
Well, I think that's brilliant, that. although it could be done state by state, John. You know, the uh, California's got a, a piece of legislation right now to create a state bank. There's other states looking at it. Of course, North Dakota did it or South Dakota. One of the Dakotas did it back in 19-aught-something. Uh, or maybe it was the 19 teens, 1918 sticks in my head, but whatever. And it's been around forever, and it saves the state billions. California would save probably hundreds of billions of dollars in bank fees and things if they created their own bank. It doesn't need to be done regionally, though. Uh, yes, I was thinking of in combination to all the, uh, well, most of the blue states are primarily coastal, more well. I'm kind of thinking that we would have kind of a leg up on uh, kind of like uh, transportation, manufacturing, well, that mm-hmm. if we came up with the communal banking system, we can also come up with a communal state's health, public health and safety reserve uh, yeah. so that we can protect ourselves from such disasters which we are happening now. At least we would have the, uh, the medical equipment and the supplies we need and also yeah. kind of not well stockpile the reserve. And uh, so that we can have also a manufacturing and distribution kind of a system. The more I think about your idea, I, first of all, I love the phrase communal. And that's what we're talking about here is community. But secondly, your idea for a regional banking system, if the blue states are basically reinventing the federal bureaucracy, at least when it comes to essential services, maybe part of that would be reinventing the Fed, although it wouldn't have the ability to, to you know, basically issue currency the way the Fed does. But but some sort of a of an umbrella banking system that is actually owned by the states collectively yes. can serve as a lender of last resort that can help bail out individual states when they're facing crises. That's a brilliant idea. That's an absolutely brilliant idea. John, thanks for the call and thanks for watching Free Speech sure, Network Comments. Great talking with you. Will. Thank you. Thank you. I will. In our latest video for folks who support our show over at TomHartman.com, it's pretty mind-boggling, actually. Candidate Trump, back in 2016, said, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, but I won't. That's what he said. Well, what did his budget actually propose? His budget actually proposed, this is last year's budget, Congress didn't pass it, thank God, but this is what his budget proposed. $1.9 trillion in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and $26 billion in cuts to Social Security. You can check it all out over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. We're talking about the uh, possibility of basically blue states and red states saying, well, you know, we'll go our own ways. You know, if the red states don't want to shut down their states, if the governors and the billionaires who own the governors want large quantities of people to die in the red states, okay, I can't stop them. You can't stop them if you live in a blue state. You know, what do we do? Jose in red state Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Jose, what do you think of this? Red state, I think it's pretty crazy. I've been an educator for many decades. I've seen the swing of government move towards the right and being in some ways reinforced by the voters. And and I was listening to something on Democracy Now! a few years ago where Michael Moore was talking and he was talking about the platform 
for election of Nixon. And in that platform, there was the dumbing down of education, you know? Right. And, and through the years, I've, and with every child left behind law being passed, and, and I've seen how testing and teaching to the test has basically reduced the teacher's ability to teach critical thinking and actually kind of to throw only what what conservatives want kids to learn in these tales of, of glory and history and but very little to help them actually give them skills on how to deal with today's politics so mm-hmm. i don't know we can make changes but we really i think we really have to work in every state to thoroughly educate children and and it's i know that teaching to the test is really a, a terrible thing uh I know it kills the kid's uh, desire to learn or, or his curiosity, yeah. and it exists. No, in I'm, I'm completely with you, Jose. I completely agree. And it's basically a cheaper way to do it. I mean, you know, that, that's that's one of the problems. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Cuts in education, big problem. Thank you for the call. Mary in Chicago. Hey, Mary, what's up? Yes, uh, I'm talking as someone who worked, you know, as a state employee in human services for for 33 years. And I want to address the whole idea of privatizing schools. So I worked uh, briefly uh, with a program, you know, that involved working with um, with students with disabilities. I'm talking about people with visual disabilities, people who have, you know, trouble, you know, um, you know, with learning disabilities. Private schools are not going to educate those kids. In fact, when I contacted a few of these private schools, because um, there was a time we were calling them, and and to the word they said, oh, we don't have any disabled students here. They don't. And you know what? They don't accept them. Public no, I get it. Mary, um, what, what are you suggesting that, I mean, I would suggest that if we do the split that I'm talking about, where the blue states create an interstate compact, we do away with the federal income tax, and the blue states can raise their taxes as high as they can and provide services that they can, that in the blue states all across the country, you'd have stronger public education. And in the red states, they would follow the Betsy DeVos road, and you'd see nothing but privatized education. In some of these states, Michigan, for example, more than half of all education is now done privately. And it would be the kind of disaster that you're describing. So, so uh, yeah, I'm with you. Mary, thank you for the call. Johnny in Galveston, Texas. Hey, Johnny, what's up? With regards to your blue state compact idea, how would the Medicare for all system work? Would that be a collective effort or would the states be on their own like Vermont? I think it would have to be a, a, a single unified effort among all the blue states in the compact where each state would agree to dedicate a certain percentage or a certain amount of their tax dollars every year to the compact and they would hire or build a separate administration, you know, kind of a blue state equivalent of Medicare uh, to provide those health benefits to people or at least to pay for those health benefits, excuse me. The providing would still be left up to the system. And I would encourage the blue states to also then require the healthcare providers in their states to operate, including the hospitals, to operate on a nonprofit basis. Try to blow up federal regulation 
on the importation of drugs so that you know, blue states can start manufacturing their own drugs in their states or they can import whatever they want without having to, to you know, jump through all these federal hoops. I'm glad you brought up the regulation part, because here's the part B of my question. How does the current Supreme Court of the United States, which is basically Republican, fit into all this? Wouldn't they have some kind of a way of chipping away at our new found powers? They may, but they, they have been, at least the conservatives on the court, have been at the forefront of states' rights. You know, if a state wants to prevent people from voting, they should be allowed to, right? You saw that decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act. If a state wants to uh, ban abortion, they should be allowed to. You, you, you've seen them very quickly moving in this direction. And in fact, many of the states have already functionally moved in that direction. So, so I would think right-wingers would be happy. You're listening to Tom Hartman. John in Hillsboro, Oregon. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. The topic you have about blue states doing a communal autonomous rules. And yeah, stuff interstate like that. compact is what I'm calling interstate it. Interstate compact, yeah, thank you. Whatever. Well, there was a book that was written back in 73, 75. Um, it was really popular in head shops. <laughs> um, it was called mm-hmm. Ecotopia. Oh, yeah, Ernest Callenbach was the author. I I loved that book. Yeah, wasn't that interesting how, you know, they did their own repair on their their cars? The Mm -hmm. whole Ecotopia area was... was like Cuba. Well, yeah, well, also it was... They defended themselves by having nuclear-tipped mines from Nevada clear up to um, Canada. It was just interesting how they went in and, like, autonomous groups were in there, like minority groups, like blacks and Native Americans. They ruled themselves, but they went to the rules of Ecotopia itself, and they had their own money. They traded more with Asia and Europe than they did with America. So it was... Right. Um, that book, by the way, John, I, 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 you know, you live in Oregon. I don't know if you realize this. That book is one of the reasons why in the 70s and 80s, late 70s and throughout the 80s and 90s, so many, quote, hippies or, you know, progressive people interested in a positive progressive lifestyle moved into Seattle and Portland. It's, yeah. it's that that yeah. book had a huge influence in turning those cities blue and then these states blue. I also plug one other book and it's about the virus. Um, mm-hmm. It's called The Distant Mirror by Barbara Tushman. And it was about the 1300s Black Plague, and what uh, was uh, about Europe in the 1300s or 1400, and why she wrote that book in that era, because that's when Western civilization was on the cusp of collapsing. They had internal wars, and also they were being invaded by the Ottomans. Right. It's a detailed thing about the Black Plague and that. And also has pictures. It, and it talks about how the Black Plague led to the Renaissance? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, well, yeah, it did, yeah. But it went into some really details about, you know, the society and how people, you know, were coping with it. You know, when the king's men were coming around, they were really actually hell's angels. They did really treated the people very, very bad. But also just telling about, you know, the bells tolling and, you know, they would have a crier coming out, you know, bring out your dead. Oh, is that um, where John Donne's uh, poem came from? I probably, but this is from, you know, like I said, it, um, mostly it was from I mean, John Donne was in the 18, 1800s, but... No, but, no, this uh, is 1300s. You know, yeah, and I know, I know, but, but ask not for yeah. whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. although maybe that tradition just continued with funerals, I suppose, because it's, you know, yeah. tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty... No, that's Longfellow. Um, 
And then um, Monty Python did a thing on Meaning of Life. Their last chapter was, you know, the Grim Reaper, you know, knocking on the door. I mean, that's a, so they have go. a little five-minute thing on YouTube on it. But anyway, I just okay, wanted well, to mention... I, I wrote it down, John. Yeah. The, the, the Distant Mirror. And let me uh, join you in recommending to all of our viewers Ernest Callenbach's brilliant novel, the, the Pacific Northwest Seceding from the Union. It's called Ecotopia. Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Okay, that red state, blue state um, situation, I see it more. The weak will suffer because the yes. people that have... over the now, short you know, term. The, but the weak are already suffering, Tyrone. Yes, 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 we are. But I, I, I think it would be more of a thing of... I can see cattle slavery coming back. I can see them utilizing these people to make, to make sure that they maintain their power structure. But they've already done that, Tyrone. In the red states, in the red states, you've got this massive explosion of prison population. And the 13th Amendment says that slavery is still legal if you've been convicted of a crime. And they're using these prisons to to produce goods and services. And, you know, I mean, the chain gang is back. Right. And it's mostly in the red states. And so if we did this. I think red state after red state after red state, when they start looking at the blue states and going, wait a minute, you can do that in America? We thought we were the only country in the world that couldn't have this because we're special. No, we're just stupid. Um, you know, and I think that the people in the red states would start saying, and, and you're in a red state, by the way, a blue state, excuse me, uh, in New York. I, I think the people in the red states would start looking at the blue states and going, whoa, life looks pretty good. Maybe we should change our leadership. Maybe we should have voted for Stacey Abrams instead of Brian Kemp or, or uh, Andrew Gillum instead of uh, Ron DeSantis. What do you think? What do you think, Tyrone? I don't even think they see that. I, I don't think there's a certain segment of the population that even see it that way. I think what they, you know, you know there's a certain segment of the population that want the federal government destroyed, period. Yeah, and sure. the fact that the, the fact that they feel like they have that power, even though they're suffering, is something that we, we tend not to be able to break through. Even when they had the bus boycott, these people said we will go out of business before we allow these people to ride where they pay to ride. So to be able to they, have except that, that power, they eventually gave in. It was the other. It wasn't the company that was running this situation. It's like we under the MTA, but Matt Store is another part of it. It was like that part. Right. Matt Store part was going out of business. The MTA came in and said, "No, we're not going to do that." So they were willing to lose their jobs, lose their livelihoods before they gave up that so-called power. These people, we got to, we got to see who we are dealing with here and recognize that there's a fanatical mindset of these people that are willing to give up everything they have to have just that so-called power. That's, that's, that's yeah, I completely I agree with you, Tyrone. I completely agree with you. But here's the thing. In red states and in red states in particular, the Republicans are holding on to power largely with a minority. They're doing it mostly by voter suppression. And, and, and they're also doing it with a, maybe about a 20% swing vote that are the people who are like low information voters and they see some ads on TV and then they vote that way. Well, I think those swing voters at the very least, yeah, we're never gonna reach the racists and the, and the, and the, and the total ideologues. 
But those swing voters would see what's going on and they would shift. And I think that they would I think that they would shift the red states. I may be wrong, but Tyrone, thanks. Thanks for your contribution to our conversation here. It's a good one. Bruce in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's up? Wouldn't there be a migration with this idea of the um, states having income tax, uh, the blue states? Uh, wouldn't there be a migration of, of, let's say, poorer people to the blue states and the billionaires from the blue states to the red states? That's a thought that I have. Probably, but, but what that's going to do is that's going to provide, you know, I mean, for example, California is on the verge of experiencing a labor shortage with, uh, you know, the growing and, and harvesting seasons coming up. Um, in part because of the because of the of the pandemic, but um, I think in larger part, um, you know, because the Trump policies on tightening the screws on immigrants have been so draconian, and and uh, you know, uh, people in the blue states might be willing to move there, you know, if it meant getting free education, free college for their kids, stuff like that, and you know, even work at a low wage for a while just to be in a state where that's possible. So I'm not sure that would be a bad thing, Bruce. And if the if the billionaires all want to live in the red states, God bless them. You know, let them turn it into Galt's uh, Galt's Gulch. <laughs> Bruce, thanks for the call. Tony in Fort Worth, Texas. You're in a red state, Tony. What do you think about this? Hi, Tom. Granted, yes, I'm in a red state, but I'm I grew up in California, and you are spot on. I'm a truck driver, and we have a program. It's called the International Fuel Tax Agreement. What that means is every driver, every person that drives a truck between all 50 states and Canada, we every all the fuel we buy, the taxes go into a fund, and each one of those, each state, each province of Canada, it's all of the, their tax rates, you know, are divided out of this fuel tax fund and that pays for hmm. well it's supposed to rather it's supposed to pay for infrastructure the bridges the roads the toll roads all of that so if you take all of the blue states and put them all into a similar type of program where the sales taxes property taxes the taxes that you know they're already paying a percentage of that goes into this fund you wouldn't well, you wouldn't call it free. You would call it state-funded or state-paid. You would have enough to mm-hmm. cover education, uh, health care. You would have enough to cover all of that, and it would be completely affordable since the blue states would not have to give any of that money to the red states. Oh, yeah. If we did not have to subsidize the red states to the tune that we're doing this, I mean, we're sending literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year out of the blue states into the red states to keep them going. And, of course, the media doesn't talk about it because the Republicans won't talk about it. But this is the simple reality. Uh, What you're suggesting, Tony, is kind of a a neo-federalism model, which is if the blue states create a compact. Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. If the blue states were to create a compact and say, "Okay, we're all going to go our own way and sort of like the European Union. You know, if you enter the European Union, your your budget deficit can't be more than three percent of GDP. And you have to comply with certain rules with regard to the right of unionization and the right of, you know, all these these various rules that you've got to comply with. Um, But you're taking it a step beyond that and saying, let's create kind of a new federalism, if I'm understanding you correctly, where the blue states take all of their income tax and sales tax and pool it and then redistribute it based on population or need. Is that what you're suggesting? 
Well, I'm not really sure, but like, okay, say for instance, uh, New York. I know for a fact, New York, their their tax rate is uh, it's twenty twenty percent for state, and I think it's uh, where I lived in Buffalo. It was another twenty six cents. So they would get their, you know, they would get their share of their tax base from this fund, and that would go that would right. go to pay for their programs. California, I don't yeah. remember what what their rate is, but they would get theirs. And excuse me, since it would all since we're all paying would all be paying taxes anyway, you would not have to add another tax. You wouldn't have to increase any taxes, and since all of the all of the funds would be concentrated among the democratic states the tax rate may actually go down because we're not having to ship any out to these loser i'm sorry <clears throat> to these taker red states right if we stop subsidizing florida and mississippi and alabama and and uh you know kentucky and west virginia you know just stop so, you know, we're not subsidizing the red states anymore. You guys can sink or swim on your own. Right. Um, it's it, in a way, it's kind of going back before the Constitution to the Articles of Confederation, where where it actually was like this. Each state had their own taxes. Each state did their own thing. In fact, there were tariffs between the states and and the Articles of Confederation were designed in part to normalize those tariffs or in some cases to, to eliminate them on products that, you know, there was a lot of interstate commerce. But there's a lot of directions that this thing could go. And, and that's a fascinating story about the truckers fund paying taxes for the highways. That's fascinating. Monty in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, Monty, what's up? I work at Fort Lauderdale here at a pharmacy, and one of my coworkers has tested positive for the coronavirus. So I'm going to self-quarantine. I started today. But here's my concern, Tom, is we ship drugs all over Florida, all over the country. I've called every Democratic representative, including our mayor here, who's been phenomenal. I spoke with uh, a representative from Ted Deutsch, and they all said the same thing. They want to close everything down, but Governor Ron DeSantis is not allowing it. Actually, the mayor's office here was going to close down every business here, except obviously the groceries and stuff. And if, you, if, if there was an outbreak of coronavirus, they were going to close it down. The governor stepped in and said, absolutely not. They're being sued. We're going to see in Florida here is going to be so scary. It's mind boggling. And one other point. I thought he did the shutdown th- order yesterday, Monty. He, he did the shutdown, but there are still people out. The supermarkets are here. No one in the supermarket is wearing gloves or masks. Not that that helps a great deal, but it is a preventative. And here's the thing, mm-hmm. Tom. Everyone that I've contacted, both whether it's uh, DeSantis, whether it's Rick Scott, or Dem- the Democratic leaders, which I'm a Democrat, but I'm trying to reach out to everyone, the only one who's gotten back to me is every Democratic leader, including the mayor here who personally called me when I told him of this. So it's amazing that... The, the, the Republicans are ignoring what's going on, and the Democratic leaders here are reaching out to me uh, on an hourly basis because they're concerned, as I am, that we ship these drugs all over Florida, and we don't know how long the virus lasts on cardboard, on surfaces. If we ship a drug to someone and they get infected, it, it could be a total disaster here. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I got my medication uh, a while ago by mail, you know, a week or two ago, and some, without going into all the details, uh, from my pharmacy, and operating on the assumption that pharmacists are frontline people, just like doctors and nurses. People are sick, they go into the pharmacy, you know, if just to buy cold medication, you know, but they may well have COVID and not realize it with a mild case. And so I'm operating on the assumption that a lot of pharmacists have been exposed. And so when I got that package in the mail, First of all, I set it aside for three or four days because apparently the virus can last on, on paper and cardboard surfaces just a day or two. But there was tape on the outside and the tape is plastic and it can last on plastic for, I've heard, uh, as little as three and as much as seven days. So I, I set it aside for almost a week and then wiped it down with a Clorox wipe, opened the package, took out the pill bottles, wiped down the pill bottles and set them aside. And fortunately, these are medications that I won't need to use for another couple of weeks because I, you know, I have an old supply. And I'm guessing that within, even if they were, the pills were individually handled by hand by the pharmacist, that if there's virus on them, they will be virus free within a week or two. So that's what I'm doing. I, mean, I'm, I don't know if that makes sense to you. No, no, I do that for my groceries. And anytime I, when I come into my home, I take my shoes off, I shower, I do everything I can. But my question to you is, Tom, I don't understand the political gain here for Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. When people are dying and millions are getting sick, how does that help them? It's almost as if, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, it's almost as if they want, the, I mean, this is a red state. Shouldn't DeSantis want people alive? I understand what Trump is doing to the blue states. I don't agree with it. Obviously, it's a genocide of some kind. But what, what politically, what advantage does Ron DeSantis get for showing how incompetent he is? The most extreme conspiracy theory that I've heard to answer that question, and I don't subscribe to it, but I don't dismiss it, is that Donald Trump has concluded that the only way he can get himself reelected is if he is the equivalent of FDR. If he's the, he's the head of the ship of state when the state is in a multi-generational crisis, a crisis of unprecedented performance. When the country's in a crisis, people are more likely to say, stay the course, keep the current leadership. So if Trump can get his act together in the next couple of months to look presidential, which he's trying to do every day with his reality show on TV, then the worse things get, the more likely people are to reelect him. That's that conspiracy theory. Beyond that, I think that, you know, personally, I think what's going on is that Trump never took the science seriously. He lied and he BSed about it because he didn't understand it and therefore didn't take it seriously. And he runs an autocratic regime where if you don't agree with dear leader, you're out on your keister. Remember, there was that one doctor who was in his administration. She was Rod Rosenstein's sister. And she was saying, wait a minute, this is going to get bad. We need to shut down the country. And he fired her. So yes, he was yes. trying to keep the stock market up. He was trying to keep the economy going. He didn't understand the science. And all these people like Ron DeSantis, you know, they're all watching Fox News. That's their exclusive source of news for many of these Republicans, including the governors. Obviously, Brian Kemp, if he had no clue until yesterday, he's only been watching Fox News. And so I think that they're just going along to go along because that's what they do. You know, they say Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. My personal opinion is that that's what we're seeing, that Trump set the tone with his lies and his BS, and these guys just fell into line behind him, not realizing that they were going to be responsible for killing thousands, maybe millions of Americans. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 